What's it like for Wall Street CEOs to be scared of you? Well, our guest interviewee can answer from experience. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show, folks. I am David Hansen. On today's show, we are revisiting an interview our foolish colleague Chris Hill recently, recently conducted with CLSA banking analyst Mike Mayo. Mayo is famous for going toe-to-toe with the titans of Wall Street like Jamie Dimon. For those of you who listened to our weekend podcast, Motley Fool Money, this is the same interview that we played on that podcast last week. So if you already heard it, well, we're sorry. But hey, it's the weekend. Go out and play with your kids or grandkids if you already heard it. Well, we hope you enjoyed the interview. I'm Chris Hill. The U.S. Justice Department and J.P. Morgan Chase are reportedly in the final stages of hammering out a $13 billion settlement over the bank's sale of mortgage bonds. So let's talk some big banks. Mike Mayo is one of the top-ranked banking and finance analysts over the past 20 years. He's currently managing director at the investment firm CLSA, and he's the author of Exile on Wall Street, One Analyst's Fight to Save the Big Banks from Themselves. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, we are, I should say right at the top, we, you and I are, are talking before this deal has been finalized. Um, so maybe the final details will be different than what have been reported in the press up till now. But I, I, I want to ask you right out of the gate about the stock of J.P. Morgan, because over the past 12 months, shares are up more than 20%. It's doing almost as well as the market overall but you look at the lack of any sort of downward movement in the share price, investors just don't seem very concerned about about this news, about this settlement, about the string of headlining lawsuits. Uh, should they be nervous? Are they wrong? In my view, Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan won the war and has lost the peace. And by that, I mean J.P. Morgan far outperformed other bank stocks during the financial crisis, during the the heat of battle. And the past couple of years, as you point out, it's been kind of a market performer at best. Say they've lost a bit of their swagger during the better times for the industry. So actually, I continue to view J.P. Morgan as dead money. I think they've lost some of their mojo. And until they resolve the legal issues and the hangover that's likely to result, it's not one of my top recommendations. You mentioned the financial crisis, and it, it seems to me like Jamie Dimon uh, generally gets credit for his leadership during the crisis. But when you consider that the settlement that we're talking about, this reported $13 billion settlement, it, it stems from J.P. Morgan's purchase of Bear Stearns, which was during the financial crisis, does Jamie Dimon also deserve some blame for that purchase? Well, first, I'll reiterate what you said. He deserves a lot of credit for going into the financial crisis. And look no further than J.P. Morgan's annual report in 2007 and 2008. In the CEO letter, Jamie Dimon says, watch out, look out for the housing crisis. So not only did they get out of the way, but he warned everybody. But having said that, what might have been considered an advantageous acquisition at the time of both Bear Stearns and Washington Mutual – turned out to be the uh, damaged goods in many ways. And on the one hand, J.P. Morgan, they stepped in there, potentially helped out the government, helped out at 
even worse domino effect during the financial crisis. But on the other hand, it's up to Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan to make sure all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and that they're protected, that the shareholders of J.P. Morgan are protected from any extra damage that came out from those acquisitions. So all that we can say is uh, they should have had their documents in order more. Why do you think Jamie Dimon has, again, generally, it seems to me like he has the reputation of being the smartest guy in the room. And by that, I mean the smartest guy at the table. If you're putting the leaders of the big banks together, Jamie Dimon sort of has that swagger, to use your words. Do you think that's deserved or do you think, no, this is a guy who, who most rooms he's in, he's the smartest guy in the room? Well, I'm going to keep going back and forth again. On the one hand, <laughs> uh, on the one hand, no. I mean, look at the number of criminal investigations of J.P. Morgan. So it's up to Jamie Dimon to ensure that the firm as a whole has a positive reputation, warranted or not. Um, they certainly have stepped into a, a lot of puddles here. On the other hand, I continue to view the most objective, long-term measure, and that stock price performance under the current CEO. And on that basis, Jamie Dimon ranks number one of all the large bank CEOs. He's delivered more value for the owners of those companies than any other CEO out there. So along those lines, it is deserved that he be given a lot of credit. Talking with Mike Mayo, managing director at investment firm CLSA and author of Exile on Wall Street, One Analyst Fight to Save the Big Banks from themselves. Let me bring in a couple other banks here because when I look at Citigroup for for a long time you were pretty down on Citigroup and and former CEO Vikram Pandit. I'm curious what you think of Michael Corbett and the job that he's done so far as the replacement for Pandit as CEO at Citigroup. Well, thanks for mentioning my one and only book, Exile on Wall Street, and I was on your show a couple years ago. But as you know, on, on page seven, I really leaned into uh, the ex-chairman of Citigroup, Dick Parsons, and certainly the ex-CEO, Vikram Pandit. I said they don't deserve to be in their positions. And about a year ago, uh, the CEO was fired, and the chairman went uh, shortly before that. And this is one of the biggest changes at Citigroup uh, in since they've been formed in their current existence since 1998. Uh, the change at the top, the new chairman and the new CEO, Mike Corbett, is a transformational event. I think this is the leading indicator for Citigroup to go from value destruction to value creation. At Citigroup, the prior CEOs, you had a deal maker with Sandy Weil, you had a lawyer with Chuck Prince, you had a hedge fund manager with Vikram Pandit, but now with Mike Corbett, you have an operator, uh, Mike Corbett, Mike the mechanic. He knows the nuts and bolts of the business, and that's what Citigroup needs, and that's what we need for our banking industry, more people who know how to run the business rather than some sort of you know, financial shenanigans that we've seen from time to time. And so he's changed the financial targets, he changed the compensation, be tied to those financial targets, and he sets a tone at the top that they are going to be held accountable. And I love it when he says, hold us accountable, we'll give you more transparency to hold us accountable. So what Citigroup and Mike Corbett's doing, that's what the entire industry should be doing. And as a contrast to J.P. Morgan, look, Citigroup is similar to a, a D student that now is striving to get a, a C plus or B minus grade. They're moving in the right direction. They're certainly far from it, but I think they're finally on the right path for the first time in 15 years, as opposed to J.P. Morgan, which we talked about before, 
where they're an A student, and that's become more like a B student. What do you think of the job that Brian Moynihan is doing at Bank of America? And again, to go back to the financial crisis, how long is B of A's acquisition of Countrywide going to continue to haunt them? That, that, theme, that seems like the acquisition, the bad acquisition, that will not die. <laughs> oh, boy. The, the, Countrywide's likely to go down as one of the worst acquisitions in the banking industry ever. The legal costs continue to go higher and higher uh, they're in a variety of ways, and it's a, it's a tough struggle. And Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank America, certainly inherited a tough position, though my view is that uh, he might have been able to mitigate some of the damage more, uh, having a more clear strategy and holding his firm more accountable. So I'm, I'm not very positive uh, on Bank America. Uh, the stock price performance under the CEO tenure actually is one of the worst. So what, going back to J.P. Morgan again, Jamie Dimon, Jamie Dimon has been rude to regulators, um, but to investors, he's gotten the job done. Uh, Brian Moynihan, intelligent, nice person, but has not gotten the job for shareholders for the last four years talking with Mike Mayo, banking and finance analyst. There are a lot of investors, and I include myself in this group, who are not interested in owning shares of the big banks, in part because of the lack of transparency. It, it just seems like there is too much going on behind the curtain. It's a black box, whatever analogy you want to use. You're analyzing this industry every day. Do you think that is something, that concern, the lack of transparency, do you think that is something that is of genuine concern to the leaders at these banks? Or do you think that they just say, you know what, that's the cost of doing business. This is just how we operate. And if along the way we have individual investors who aren't interested, that's fine. We'll always find people who are willing to buy our stock. To some degree, the largest banks are too big to manage, at least in the form they were in going into the financial crisis. It's incumbent upon the largest banks to become more simple, to improve their transparency, and really just let people know what they're doing. Um, the way I think about it is that this translates into the need for a larger margin of safety when investing in the largest banks. You're not going to go – give the largest banks the same premium you give any other company in the S&P 500. In the case of Citigroup, which I now recommend for the first time in five years, and I think the stock can double over the next four years. I'm more positive on Citigroup than any time in the last 15 years. The way I get around that is first just realize the stock price is still down 90% from where it was leading into the financial crisis. And even if you adjust for their large increase in shares outstanding, the stock price would still need to double to catch up to where it was before the financial crisis. And this is at a time when the stock market's at an all-time high. So it's severely underperformed. So to some degree, people are looking in the rearview mirror. I, I sounded the alarm for years before the financial crisis. I, I had over 10,000 pages of research for the decade leading into the financial crisis. Citigroup was point and center for that lack of transparency and all those risks. So from my standpoint, that is absolutely nothing new as far as the transparency concerns. 
but you have a stock price that's 90% below where it was or 50% below where it was in a share-adjusted basis. To me, with the new management, that's a great opportunity. What do you think of Internet-only banks like uh, B of I Holdings? The number of branches in the banking industry has gone up by almost one-fourth since the start of last decade. And now it's retreating. And so it got close to 100,000 branches, and they'll probably wind up being around 80,000 branches by the end of next decade. And so the rate of branch closures uh, last year was the, the greatest in U.S. banking history. So branches are closing, and in place of that, you're having more services delivered through the Internet and ATMs, mobile banking, alternative delivery. So that's certainly a trend. Uh, the question is, Internet-only banks, how are they going to compete with the largest banks as the largest banks focus increasingly more on that similar type of delivery channel. It's a, we've heard about Internet banking. It's certainly a nice service for customers, but which of those services will customers use? That's still an open question. Uh, I, I want to wrap up on a somewhat personal note because uh, I think it's fair to say that and accurate to say that uh, you've been blackballed in your career at various points, uh, and you've somehow managed to survive. Uh, there are certainly other analysts who have not been as lucky or have managed to persevere. How have you managed to do that? Do you ever sort of look back over the last 20 years and, and think that, wow, I, you know, not a lot of people made it through this process, and I'm one of them? Well, there's certainly been a lot of luck uh, when I've been fired uh, or other times almost fired, and I just got very lucky to get a job on the tail end of that. But it, it shouldn't be that tough. It shouldn't be that to you know fight the good fight and do the job the way it's supposed to be done. I don't think I've done anything outlandish. I just think I've done the job the way it's supposed to be done. Um, also, I just think it takes so much extra work. I mean, I've been working on a report right now where uh, you know to really call a spade a spade, it can take multiples of the amount of effort for another analyst to do the same job when they simply parrot what a company has to say or take the party line or says, bye, bye, bye. Um, and so it's just, but if it's your passion, it's not, doesn't really feel like work. Um, so I'd say it's certainly I and my teams had to work a lot harder, a lot of luck, uh, but it's unfortunate it has to be that way. And frankly, that is why I wrote my, my book, uh, which we've referenced a couple times here, but it was simply a painful process. I actually started writing the book when I was fired um, in the beginning of last decade for saying to sell the banks, and that's well-documented and everything else, but it was my outlet for the six months when I was unemployed. I simply put my thoughts down on paper just as a relief. The system shouldn't be like that, uh, and so what I've been doing, I've been going to uh, annual meetings for the first time in my career, first time in 25 years, going to annual meetings and asking the board of directors, the people overseeing the CEO, saying, what are you doing to ensure greater accountability? In other words, it's up to the investors to regain ownership of the issue of management accountability away from the regulators, because if the investors don't do it, then the regulators will do it. The book is Exile on Wall Street, One Analyst's Fight to Save the Big Banks from Themselves. Definitely pick up a copy. It's a great read. Uh, but his day job is managing director for investment firm CLSA. Mike Mayo, always good to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That's our show for today. As always, you can tweet any questions, comments, or concerns to us. We are at TMF Financials, or you can send an email to WTMI at fool.com, and we'll answer your questions here on the show. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend. 
People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.